Let me ask you, did you receive any invitations over the Christmas period? Some of you undoubtedly receive a number. Some to company-hosted Christmas banquets, others to family dinners. Invitations are an enduring staple of life. We routinely receive invitations to wedding receptions, birthday parties. In fact, just walking on the street, you are invited. You see advertisements to take advantage of some time-limited bargain price at Eaton Center or some department store. Just walking in the food court of a mall, you might find somebody will come up to you with a tray of strange-looking food, inviting you to taste. We receive invitations all the time. My concern this morning, however, relates to the greatest invitation that we can ever receive, that invitation from God, an invitation to intimacy with God. And the gospel of Luke contains this recurring theme of divine invitation. We see this, for instance, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. In the first six verses, Jesus accepts an invitation to the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, a ruler of the people, maybe a, a major leader among the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem and over Israel. We see our Lord Jesus Christ instructing them in a parable to humble themselves and not to seek the place of honor. We notice in this passage the parable of the great banquet. But all of these units from verses 1 to 24 are held together by this motif of invitation. In fact, the word that occurs there is kaleo. And kaleo means to summons or to invite, to call, to invite. It appears some 11 times from verse 7 to verse 24. This is the notion of inviting. You see that, for instance, in verse 7, invite opens that section, and in verse 24, it closes it. And in between that, you find in verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 12, 13, verse 16, and 17, this emphasis upon the invited ones, the same word coming from the root kaleo. Our concern this morning relates to the parable of the great banquet in verses 15 to 24. Jesus is in the house of the Pharisee. He has now already commented on those who are seeking the major place of honor. He calls them to humility. But then he switches attention from the guest at this banquet where he is now in attendance, or this house in which he's attendance, and fixes his attention on the host in verses 12 to 14. And he takes up the subject of reciprocity. For it was very often in the first century that when people invited others, they invited others so that they could be invited back in the future. And Jesus tells him, tells the host, 
that when he invites people to his home, he must not invite his friends and his brothers and his relatives and his rich neighbors, but he must invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. That is, he must invite those who have no way of repaying him. And if he does that, then God will take note of it, and in the eschaton, at the end of the age, God will reward him. Now, there was a man seated there at the table with Jesus. And he blurts out, blessed is he, or blessed is the person who will eat in the kingdom of God. So, Jesus then addresses him. And our Lord addresses him in our passage. He says, essentially, let me tell you that even though you speak glowingly about eating in the banquet of God, the messianic banquet at the end of the age, you do not mean it. For when you receive the opportunity to enter God's kingdom, you unhesitatingly reject it. And the, the, the parable of the great supper in verses 16 to 24 is Jesus' way of concretizing this main point. That is, they anticipate, they, they speak of entering God's kingdom and being there in the end. But when they are invited, they reject it. Let's come to the parable then in Luke 14 and verse 16 and following. Jesus tells them of this banquet. Notice first of all the great invitation. He commences this parable, this earthly story with a heavenly meaning, not the best description, but it will do for today. He begins this with a man, ostensibly a very rich man, because he's throwing a party at his house. You see the great invitation, and he invites many. That's what we are told in verse 16. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Those who specialize in the culture, the social world of the New Testament, tells us that in fact he sends two invitations. The first invitation he sends ostensibly to people who are within his own rank, telling them of a banquet that he's going to prepare. Those who receive the invitation accept that they will come to this feast. And this is important because it is based on the numbers of those who accepted the invitation that he will prepare. If, for instance, you have 15 to 34 people who said we are going to come to the feast, he may indeed decide to kill a lamb. But if he had 35 to say 75, he knows that he must prepare a calf. So the invitation is given, the servant goes out and he gives it. And those who receive the invitation, they had an obligation. They must first ask a number of questions like, first of all, tell me about the guest list. Because you need to know that in the first century, people ate with people within their own status, in their own social group. So they would ask, oh, tell me who's coming. Tell me what kind of preparations are, are being made. Because, you know, I'm not going to come to, you know, a, a kind of nonsensical barbecue, you know, you know, barbecue right? No, I'm going to come to something that is really, you know, really juicy and, 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 and entertaining and, and, and lovely. 
And so they would ask these questions. They want to make sure that their attendance there will not diminish their rank in the social setting in which they lived. There is nothing then in the passage that suggests that these people had any problem with the banquet. They all ostensibly agree to attend. On the day of the banquet, you can well imagine that the preparations are on the way. The home of the host is a hive of activity. Servants are running everywhere. They kill the animal. They roast it. There is baking going on in the kitchen. They are laying the table. They're decorating. And finally, the host surveys the entire scene. And everything has been done according to his whim and fancy. He is satisfied. The only thing that remains yet is for the guest to come. The great invitation. So he sends the servant a second time. And he goes with a simple message to those who were first invited and had revealed their intention to come. The, the servant goes to them and says, Come, for all things are now ready. The host expects that the attendees would respond with haste. The great invitation, come, because everything is now ready. But the parable shows not only a great invitation, it shows a great offense. A great offense. For verse 18, we find a surprising twist in the narrative. We read that they all with one accord began to make excuses. The language there, at least in the original, might lead, us to, might lead us to conclude that they conspired, that they agreed, that they were together not going to go to the banquet. And you need to know that, you know, if your rich neighbor has a problem with the banquet and says, I'm not going to go there, you can't be found there because you're going to be mixing with the wrong people. And so it seems that all of these guests who were invited decided they were not going to turn up after all. They had ample time before the banquet was prepared to signal a change of mind. If there was an emergency, they should make haste to alert the host that they couldn't attend. But they waited until all the preparations had been made to spring a surprise on the host at the last minute. Now, you need to understand that this is really terrible. Can, can you imagine, for Christmas dinner, you, you invite 20 people to your place. This is going to be a big do at your home. You, you, you spend the, the day before Christmas shopping, buying things that you never normally buy for yourself. You get up early, 5 o'clock in the morning, to, to, to bake the turkey. You even sweep places in your house that you have never knew existed before. And you do all of that. And at the last minute, when you agree that they should be there at 12.30, Nobody shows up. You call the guys, guys up and say, well, what's going on? I say, oh, no, sorry, we, I had some other plans. I can't make it today. And all of the 20 people who you invited decided that they're not coming. Many of you would not be pleased. I suggest you probably would never invite them again to your home, not even to drink water. You see the great offense. The text leads, gives us three excuses 
that they make. It's not, it's, it's not saying that it's only three people who refuse. All of them refuse, the text tells us. But our Lord gives us three examples of the excuses that they provided. The first fellow, we are told in verse 18, says, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it in verse 18. I ask you to have me excused. This is his excuse. What is his excuse? I have just bought a property and I need to go and look at it. Now, that may seem to you to be a good excuse, but it is very poor. And, there, and, and, and it's very poor for a number of reasons. Let me list at least a couple. First of all, we are told that the purchase of land in the Middle East at that time in the first century was a complex and elongated process that would often take years to come to fruition. It is of note that this man has bought a piece of land that he has never seen. Now you, you would find it very hard if, if you found somebody selling land on KGG or something like that and you just take the phone up and call the guy and say, I'm going to buy it. You've never looked at it. Well, this fellow went ahead, bought the piece of land, and then he says, I must go and examine it. Who does that? Who buys a house and then goes and looks at the house after he has bought it? When the deal cannot be broken. But you know that there's something wrong with this excuse because generally banquets were held when? In the late evening, dusk, at the approach of night. It is at this time, perhaps, with a torch, he's going to go and examine the field. He's already bought the thing. Why does he not wait until the next day in the full glare of sunlight to investigate the property? Not even he expects the host to buy it. But there's one thing about this fellow that you must commend. He's very polite. He says, would you please excuse me? The second fellow, like his counterpart, early counterpart, is a very polite fellow because he asked to be excused. But he has another flimsy excuse. He says, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. In fact, the language there, going to test them, meaning I am already on my way to test them. Again, this excuse cannot stand up to muster. He buys ten oxen, five teams. Generally, oxen were sold in the marketplace. Generally, there would be a field nearby where, where the seller... Would, would allow the prospective buyers to see the oxen at work, pulling together. You see, oxen were teamed together. There were two of them together. They were yoked, and they would pull the plow behind them. And if, if these two were cantankerous oxen and they wouldn't work together, then you wouldn't buy them because you need oxen to pull together. But you had to examine them. You had to examine to see whether they were old or they were young, whether they had defects. No, this fellow goes ahead and he buys five teams, Ten oxen. By the way, he's a rich fellow because ten oxen could, could plow perhaps a hundred or two hundred acres of land. But he buys them without examining them. And again, he's going at night to, to examine them. But, but then again, we must give him credit for he's rather polite. He says, I ask you, have me excused. Verse 19. The third excuse is by far the worst and the most objectionable. For the third man says, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, when you look at this on the surface, there doesn't seem to be a problem. 
The man wants to spend time with his wife. Who, who wouldn't say this is a wonderful thing? I want to spend some time with my wife. But I want to suggest to you that this is the worst insult he could possibly give to the host. First of all, he cannot claim that Deuteronomy says that when a, newly married, when a man is newly married, he should not go to war and he should not take long trips in the first year. For, of course, if he goes to war, he may be killed. If he's just got married, he already doesn't know his wife. He takes a trip for a year to be a salesman, for instance, all over Mesopotamia. He may come back and not find his wife, having neglected her. So it's not, it's, it's not sensible to leave your wife for a year, and that's what the Old Testament stipulates. But he's not being invited to battle, nor is he invited on a trip. He's invited to a feast. But what is so objectionable about this man's excuse? First of all, he, he dispenses with the customary reserve that men usually exercise in the Middle East at that time with regards their wives. It was not customary, it was not cultural, culturally acceptable for men to speak publicly about their wives. He may well have preferred his wife's company to the host, but you don't say that. You don't say in a patriarchal society, I'd rather stay home with my wife than come and dine with you. Very few insults rose to this rank. And furthermore, he lacked even the civility to say, please forgive me. I'm staying home with my wife, I'm not coming. We see first then the great invitation, come for everything is not ready. We see the great offense. But you will note that there is, thirdly, a great reversal in the parable. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. This host has now suffered considerable public embarrassment and is displeased, very displeased. But instead of tactfully retreating to brood over the injury to his character and reputation, he does the unexpected. He displays his generosity. For he sends his servants to round up the poor, those who were suffering from some physical defect. And by the way, these people who were maimed and crippled were not allowed to participate in social functions, particularly in worship. But this, this, this master of the house sends his servant to gather into his banquet those who were undeserving and could not repay him. The servant does so and returns. And he tells his master, I have done as you have commanded me, but there is still much room in your house for more. In fact, there are many, many more spaces at the table that you can fill if you get others. And so the master does even something far greater. Shatters a social taboo. He tells the servant to go out into the highway and the hedges and to compel them to come in. The highways and the hedges 
refer to the main roads outside of the city wall. Outside of the city, there were tanners. Tanners were people who worked with animal skin and turned it into leather. And that was a smelly, messy, dirty business. And so they were outside of the city. There were the prostitutes and the beggars. And of course, outside on the main roads, outside the city, were the Gentiles with whom the Jews had no contact. This man says, go out and compel them to come in so that my house will be filled. Now, let us be very clear that because there are those who have sought to argue that the, the, the call to compel them to come in means that we can forcibly convert people to Christianity. But this is not what the text is saying. In fact, the language there is not really of forcing them, but of persuading. That's the language. And, and the verb that is used can carry that sense of urging or persuading. I think that's a better translation. They are to persuade them. Why? Because these people, they realize that the Jewish society was so structured to keep them away from the people who were rich and powerful. They could understand if, if the servant had come and said to them, you know what, my master wants to send you food that you've never eaten in your life. They would have gladly accepted that. But they are not being told, my master wants you to penetrate the barriers that have been set up to keep you away from him and to come to his house and to sit at table in your smelly, unwashed garment and eat with him. They would have asked the question, are you serious? Do you really mean me? That cannot be. And so the servant was to persuade them. He was to, with a smile and with strong urging, to tell them, yes, you have been called. You must come. The sting of the parable, however, is found in the tale. Because Jesus says, for I say to you, that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. You need to know that this is not now the Lord of the banquet, the master of the house, the host who speaks. Throughout the parable, the master speaks to a servant, singular. He sends one servant to his friends. He sends one servant outside the city to gather in the people. But in verse 24, he says, I say to you, and there, the second person pronoun, you, is not singular, but plural. And what it says, therefore, is that Jesus is now applying the parable to the people, the Pharisees and the scribes who sat with him. He says, I tell you that none of those who were invited will taste of my supper. That is, none of you here who reject the invitation to enter the kingdom will ever, ever enter into heaven. We see the great invitation, come for all things are not ready. We see the great insult to the master. And now we see the great reversal. Those who were invited will not taste of it, but others who were on the outside will be brought in. This new year constitutes an invitation from God, an invitation from the sovereign God 
to all of us to come. Throughout the Bible, God has manifested himself as an inviting God. He's the same God who called Adam and Eve in the garden. He's the same God who called his people to the prophets. And he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. The call of God then is for us to enter the kingdom of God. That is, to enter and to put ourselves under the rule and the authority of God. It is in fact the call to enter the kingdom, a call to salvation, a call to the banquet. And it is interesting that Jesus associates the kingdom and salvation to a banquet. Because this, this, this notion of salvation being a banquet was known. The Old Testament in, in Isaiah 25 speaks of this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of, of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, Isaiah 25, 6. And so they are called to enter salvation. Salvation which is defined as God's rule, as a spiritual banquet, a spiritual feasting. This invitation comes at this, begin, at this new year to all of us. It comes to you and to me personally. You are called personally. When God called Israel, he said, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. See, God calls you, and this call must be accepted. The call then to come, to enter the banquet, to enter into salvation, requires not mere consideration, but compliance. And there are at least three reasons that the text suggests why we must come. First of all, we must accept God's offer of salvation, of entering this banquet, because of the generosity of the, of the host, the Lord of the host, the Lord of the banquet. This is the God who is kind and merciful. He is the one who calls because of his marvelous love. He prepares the banquet. It is his initiative. And he calls the worst of sinners, the worst men in society, those without means, those who cannot repay him. And God who calls us to salvation calls you and calls me as sinners who have done nothing to earn salvation, who in fact deserve damnation. But he calls you. You see, the generosity of the host who prepares this banquet demands that we must respond. But secondly, the sufficiency of his provision of salvation requires a response. He says, come for all things are not ready. God's kingdom is indeed a banquet. It, it contains supernatural gifts, gifts and blessings that you and I can find nowhere else. It contains the greatest of blessings. First of all, the invitation to enter God's kingdom or to enter into salvation provides and confers the blessing of permanent forgiveness. There is nowhere in the universe 
where our sins can be forgiven, but by coming to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul links the kingdom of God and forgiveness. He says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins. This invitation to come to the banquet is a call to come to receive forgiveness. And I want to suggest to you that in 2015, you must heed this call because of the rich provisions that God has made that you can know in 2015 all of your sins washed away. This call must be heeded because God not only provides permanent forgiveness of all your sins, he provides intimate fellowship. The call to come requires a relocation, a movement, a drawing nearer in intimacy. And when God calls, he calls us not just to receive salvation, that is, escape from hell. He calls us into intimate fellowship, to a relationship to know him, to experience his love, to know him as our Father and our God. He's calling us then to intimacy. This is why John could say, and what we have heard, we declare to you, that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful way to begin the new year. To know that you are in a relationship with God. To know that he has your back. To know that he's your father and your friend and your guide and your protector and one who cares for you. He says, come, not just to salvation, but come to me. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you a relationship with himself, fellowship. But he offers you, thirdly, spiritual felicity. Spiritual bliss, spiritual joy. And that is why Paul could say that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You need to know the reason salvation is depicted as a banquet, it is because God perceives that all our lives, regardless of how much money we have, how successful we are, we are living on a subsistent diet in this world. That you really have not yet tasted, you have never known true satisfaction until you come to Jesus Christ. And so it's called a banquet because spiritual feasting, joy, that deep abiding joy can only be found in Jesus Christ and the salvation he gives. And so he calls you. You have to come, two reasons, because of the generosity of the master of the banquet, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You have to come because of the, the provision, the sufficient, sufficiency of his provisions, of forgiveness and fellowship and felicity. But the third reason you ought to come, and hear me clearly, is because of the reality of a shocking reversal. You see, there are many people year after year, who express a desire to go to heaven. But they're never serious. Because the invitation by God given to them 
to come, they reject. They put possessions and business and relationships above God. They continually consider these things to be priorities. And not only will they miss the salvation of God, but they will incur his wrath. They will discover one day it is too late. There's going to be a great reversal. They will realize that to be obsessed with worldly affairs and relationship and to reject God's offer of salvation will land them in a place of utter darkness. You hear the phrase or the statement quite often, the show must go on. You know, a big snowstorm comes to Toronto and they're having some kind of get-together downtown in one of those theaters, the show must go on. The lead actor or singer gets sick, the, the show must go on. They fly somebody else in, the show must go on. You need to know that God's banquet must go on. That nothing will thwart it. God's kingdom will be filled. That there are people who will be saved and will be in heaven. The only question is, will you be among them? The show must go on. May God help you that it does not go on without you. No excuse that you and I may provide will be sufficiently good enough to receive divine approbation. Any excuse that we give is seen by God as an insult to him and to his mercy. But by now the question that you must be asking or should be asking is how do I enter? How do I enter into salvation? I want to suggest to you in simple terms that you enter by repentance. And repentance requires that there should be a sorrow for our sins. A recognition that the one who calls us is God. You can never be a Christian until you're able to recognize the voice of God calling you. You see, Samuel heard God's voice but he didn't know it was the Lord. You see, before you can become a Christian, you have to know and understand and hear the voice of the Lord calling you. You then have to repent. Repentance is not merely being sorry for the ways we have sinned and offended God. It is a change. A change in our thinking about God. Instead of seeing God as a a tyrant and a terrible being, seeing him as a loving father, a gracious, kind, and compassionate friend. It needs a change of mind about God. A change of mind about ourselves. Instead of thinking ourselves to be the best thing since sliced bread, we realize that we are sinners. It requires a change more particularly in living. It means that we turn around and head in the opposite direction. The things that we did in 2014 that we knew in our heart and our consciences that were offensive to God, we must cease. It needs needs repentance. But at the heart of this repentance must be an acknowledgement that we can no longer live for our petty interests. That we can no longer live to satisfy our selfish desires, but that God must become the ultimate reference point of life. 
that the man or woman who comes to repentance sees God as his or her ultimate reference point. That is in all that I do, in my relationship in society, in my work in society, in my family, everything I do, I read through the prism and the grid of Jesus Christ. That he is my ultimate reference point, my race and death. I live for him. I live to serve him. I live for his glory. He becomes my ultimate reference point, my northern star. It means ultimately that we submit to his kingdom We submit to his rule and to his reign. That's repentance. It requires faith. It means that we must come, if we are to be saved, trusting. Do you know, salvation is found in trust. You trust people, family, good friends, people who keep their words. Salvation is founded on trust. It's taking Christ at his word. It's resting on him. It's understanding that he is reliable. In more particular terms, it is faith, reliance, trust in Jesus Christ that his work on the cross, his death for our sins, paid fully and finally for all our sins. The person who comes and believes in Jesus Christ the crucified Savior and the living Savior will be saved. How do you receive this kingdom? How do you enter it? How do you receive the salvation? You receive it by repenting and by trusting, by trusting in Jesus. Now, now you may be here and you are a Christian. You've already come to the Lord. I want to suggest to you that in 2015, you must come And you must keep coming. Our Lord Jesus says, everything is now ready. Come, for everything is now ready. And I need you you to understand this. That everything that you need, spiritually, for life and for godliness, Christ has provided. You must make 2015 a year in which you not only come to the Lord once, but you keep coming for grace, keep coming for cleansing, keep coming for power to live the Christian life. Come and keep on coming. What will we do in 2015? We will hear the call of Jesus. Come, for everything is not ready. Everything that you will need, the answer is found in Jesus Christ. My friends, I have nothing to give you in 2015 than Jesus. I found him over 30 years ago. In fact, he found me over 30 years ago. And I have no greater treasure to give you than Jesus. This loving Savior says, come, all things are now ready. If you need comfort, if you need help, if you need the assuring love, it is to be found in Jesus. All things are not ready. Come. My dear friends, I wonder if you will leave this room with Jesus. I wonder if you came in without him, you will go out with him. That is my prayer for you this morning, this day, in this first Sunday of 2015, that if you came without Christ, you will leave with him. 
that you will commit yourself in this new year to take up his invitation to intimacy, to spend time on your knees in prayer, to worship him, to look to him, to trust in him, and to anticipate his great coming. Come, he says to you, regardless of where you have been and what you have done and where you now are, he says to you, come. All things are now ready for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.